Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on the Art Hour. And today we have the great pleasure to have with us a contemporary artist, painter, portraitist and multimedia artist uh, at large, uh, Paul Benny. Paul, welcome to the studio. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here again with you. Uh, Paul, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started and how did you decide to become an artist? You're a self-taught artist, correct? Yes, um, I am a self-taught artist. I have, a, uh, I don't know, some misgivings about that, only because the you 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 kind of walk a different path. I think as a self-taught artist than artists who've been through the art school system. Uh, and you develop different modes of survival. And um, before we start going into detail about your work and go more into depth about your practice, um, I want a comment for the first track because uh, it's mm -hmm. one of the tracks that you've composed along with uh, James Ribbons. Yes. Yeah, James Ribbons and I... Uh, developed a way of working together musically a few years ago and we now um, work together under the name of the Salis, which is the, the, the band name, uh, or Salis Collab, as it is at the moment. Um, and whenever we can, we can uh, get together in a recording studio and that last track was one of the more recent ones. Cold? Uh, that one's called Sometimes Always. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, um, you said that you chose the difficult path of not going through an art school. So when did you start painting or doing art? And why did you decide, uh, did you decide not to take this path of the formal uh, education? Um, well, I was brought up in a very artistic family. Uh, my grandfather was a kind of prominent English painter, father was a silversmith and jeweler and also a painter. Uh, my mother was a poet, and so it was kind of everywhere. And I felt um, empowered, I suppose, to pursue art in whichever direction I thought was best. And at the time, trying to find a place for myself in London art schools after many interviews, I felt was going to be impossible. The agenda in that in those days in the late seventies was very much a sort of last cry of abstract expressionism, mm. which is great, but it's not what I was doing. And they all looked at my work as uh, representational or vaguely representational, as somewhat sort of irrelevant at the time. So they just didn't. They weren't really interested. So I was like, okay. That's if you're just not interested in me, I'm not interested yeah, in you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and I took off to India, where I spent mm. a great deal of time, um, not staring at my navel, but I was uh, just kind of existing with no money. But So I, I ended up doing a lot of drawings of people on the street and selling them just for, you know, a cup of tea or something. And that way I found I got pretty good at catching people. Hmm. And that sort of was the start of my uh, abilities, I guess, as a portrait painter. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that somehow or other I could always rely on that if I needed to. And when I started a family, for instance, much, much later, that's kind of where, you know, I had to put my eggs in that basket for a period of time so that I wasn't so I was able to bring up a family look after the home let's go to Bonobo and back with uh, Paul Benny and uh, more about his life and art Hey. It's hard to take 
Bonobo. Why Bonobo, Benny? Um, well, all of these tracks have a, some kind of significance. And Bonobo, I was introduced to quite by accident. I, I'd been playing my own and composing my own songs for a while. And my daughter, who'd just been to a festival, so, so I was listening to my music and said, have you, have you come across Bonobo? And I hadn't. And... Uh, when I started listening, I was amazed at the correspondence. There seemed to be a strong correspondence between his work, their work, <laughs> and um, and what I was doing. And that last track is just gorgeous. And very relaxing and smooth. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to go back to India and your work, uh, which is at large... Uh, and I hope you will agree uh, with me on that one. <laughs> it's characterized by a form of spirituality um, and deep reflection. I feel that the way that I work is is much more of a mystery in a way. It's not providing any easy answers. In a sense, what I do is I try and hold in suspension a sense of mystery mm -hmm. um, and not allow it to become didactic mm -hmm. and that's the way I feel strongly about the way I negotiate the world mm -hmm. and sometimes my work because people have remarked that it feels a bit like deja vu when you look at some of the work you feel like you know, it's a new painting, you've not seen it before, but it, it reminds you of something that's happened in the past. And for me, that's a very strong emotion, that sense of deja vu, the sense that you've re you're visiting or revisiting something that you've experienced in the past or a previous life or some place in your psyche that you're not fully conscious of, yet the artist is providing a window into... And I want to go to another window of your career, mm. uh, which was a, a big one uh, around the 80s in, in New York. Mm. And um, you were part of a huge movement of the time, uh, new expressionists, uh, very vibrant, uh, very dynamic, um, uh, hanging around with uh, Kiki Smith and uh, Basquiat and all these people. And um, you came back to the UK way 10 years after, I think, having yes. a new m movement forming, shaping here. 
the YBAs. Was it like a déjà vu for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it did feel like that uh, in a way. I mean, I could see it from uh, afar because I wasn't part of the YBA movement. Uh, I'd already done your kind <laughs> of been there, you know, but with a whole group of different artists, mostly American. In fact, there were very, very few British artists there uh, downtown New York, East Village, Lower East Side at the, at the time. In the early 80s, there was hardly any. Um, uh, and it and it felt like the the kind of people you're talking about, Kiki Smith, Basquiat, Snarble, Clemente, Cucci, Kuki, um, and, a, and a whole, you know, Robert Longo, Cindy Sherman to a certain extent, certain extent. I mean, they they all were contemporaries of mine, and mm -hmm. and we did exhibit in some shows together, mm -hmm. group shows. There are a lot of group shows at the time, but they all had a um, a focus on a form of representation, the, the the new expressionist form of representation, which gave me and a lot of other artists uh, permission to paint the kind of representational, in my case, dealing with the sort of d darker, shadowy side of representation um, that we weren't, simply, I simply didn't feel I had permission to do in, in Britain at the time. And what brought you back to Britain? I mean, having an amazingly successful career, finding new ways to express yourself, uh, perhaps closer to yourself, more freedom, hmm. uh, an environment that... I think, as I understand from what you said, providing more a sense of freedom. Why did you decide to come back in the UK? Well, it, you know, New York in the 80s was a sort of now legendary uh, uh, sort of, uh, what would you call it, um, <clears throat> Wild West frontier town. Uh, it, the area that I was living in downtown in the Lower East Side was, 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 was a derelict, burnt-out ghetto with whole blocks that just weren't there. Um, kids living in burnt-out cars, you know, drug addicts everywhere, and people dying on the street. I mean, it was a really grim time, but it nevertheless was ex exceptionally vibrant uh, artistically. It drew in artists from all over the whole of the States and elsewhere to an area that was cheap enough for us all to live. So it was almost like a university campus. However, the, the 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 issue was that there was so much violence uh, to the point where I, I came across uh, one particular time, one very particularly grim time, where I came across a, a body that was uh, dismembered uh, in a plastic bag outside my studio in an empty lot, being poked at by two little Puerto Rican kids, and I, you know, I was like. I, I just don't need this. If I'm going to bring up a family, you know, we we just got to move. <laughs> uh, so we ended up leaving at the end of the 80s to come back to England and start a family. That mm. was the main reason. Somewhere down the crazy river uh, with Robbie Robertson and back with Paul Penny. She 
to the UK and you had uh, the YBA movements evolving and why did, did you not get involved this time with this movement? was not expressing you, you were not feeling um, relevant enough at that time when you came here in this kind of transitional period from you coming back from the States and um, um, a different kind of, of uh, art form perhaps at the time? Yeah, I mean, it was a very exciting time in London. It was at, at that beginning, those few years at the beginning when they were all um, developing their careers, uh, although I don't think they would have called them careers back in those days. The um, feeling I had was that, uh, I, necessarily, I mean, if you know, you know, if you know my work, as you do, it's like... They, I couldn't really see it as part of that that development in art. I mean, if you think the obvious example being someone like Damien Hurst or uh, Tracy Emin or Sarah Lucas, they were they were they were developing a kind of language that relied on a big, you know, big visual impact. Um, the 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 word sensation comes to mind and that show that happened at the Royal Academy called mm -hmm. Sensation kind of summed it up. And my my work 
isn't really about sensation at all. It's it's much more um, uh, introverted, you could say, and looking uh, beyond the sensation into things that uh, maybe provoke the sensations. Uh, so I didn't feel happy in that, you know, in that group artistically. Uh, so I, I, I was running alongside them, you know, having exhibitions and so on in London, but I wouldn't be, I couldn't be considered to be one of them, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you choose the last uh, track we just listened to? Well, Robbie Robertson, yeah. yeah just to go back <laughs> to this very fast. Yeah. yeah, it kind of was appropriate uh, just after the description of New York because yeah. it does really remind me of being in America, that song. Uh, it's, it's, it's a super sexy song about, actually not New York at all, but it, you know, it's more like a kind of Mississippi blues type song uh, that um, while I was there and now... I'm very nostalgic about that that kind of sweaty, steamy New Orleans thing. Uh, Paul, you, you're one of the artists that I have in my mind exhibiting the most at the National Portrait Gallery, <laughs> uh, as well as being the longest um, uh, artist resident um, in residence at the Somerset House. Mm. Uh, would you like to share uh, a little bit more uh, with us for these experiences about these experiences you had? What at the National Portrait Gallery or both? Uh, one mm. after the other. Yeah. Let, let's start with the first one, the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, well, they've been they've been really supportive over the years. Uh, right from you know twenty twenty years ago, I've been exhibiting on and off there, and uh, I've got two or three paintings in their permanent collection the most recent being one of Fergus Henderson who's the well-known chef and bon viveur and he's holding a holding a roasted pig on his <laughs> yes. shoulder like, like the Madonna and child yeah that's yes. right it's hanging now so if anyone wants to see it it's right there um, I want to make a parenthesis here because it's impossible to describe paintings paintings through the radio no, or any other form of work yeah. I will highly recommend to everyone to visit uh, Paul Bainey's uh, website at least yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your website uh, Paul? it's just paulbainey.com yeah that's, <laughs> that's all you need to know um, but yeah with, with, with the National Portrait Gallery there. so yes I've, I've won, a, won some prizes there um, and as I said they've been very supportive uh, however, recently, myself and a few other artists, all of who, all of whom have have, have had prizes given to them um, from the BP Portrait Award exhibition that happens every year, um, we felt that we needed to talk about the sponsorship issues around the fossil fuel industry and. I just had got to the point in my life where, you know, I live in a house that's run off alternative fuel sources. I run an electric car. I do whatever I can in that area. Yeah, my carbon footprint. And there I was kind of supporting an exhibition that was being sponsored by one of the main producers of this carbon. Uh, So... It, it was a conversation that needed to be opened, and we, we, we had a dialogue with the National Portrait Gallery about perhaps finding new sponsorship for that exhibition, very important exhibition. Um, and I have since had meetings with um, various um, companies, multinational companies, that will be interested in uh, sponsorship of this exhibition. Nothing's come to fruition yet, but I'm sure it will soon. So you basically you you you're searching for alternative sponsors in collaboration with the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, I'm not really working in collaboration with mm-hmm. the National Portrait Gallery. I'm just doing this on my own at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will come a time, I'm sure, where that will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not on the board or anything so i don't have a, i don't have a voice within the national portrait gallery uh, bp is investing a lot um to my knowledge 
for alternative uh, forms of energy. Uh, was that an argument that kind of? Um, yeah, well, took this, part this of is this is has been asked of me several times before, and and it's true. They they have put in relatively uh, a large amount of money into alternative uh, forms of energy. However, one has to see it in perspective. In the perspective is that out of nine out of a hundred percent, let's say, of their available capital to invest every year in research and development, three percent of that goes on alternative energy, and ninety seven percent of that goes on trying to find new new areas and new um, reserves of fossil fuels. So, if you think about where the their priorities are, yeah. it's not. Uh, you know, if you if you look at their advertising around the nowadays PP, you'd think it was a windmill company, you know, because it's, right. it's all green and there's windmills everywhere. But the reality um, numbers is quite different. Plus, their their tax um, uh, uh, their benefits that they get from the government on tax savings comes to an amazing ten point eight billion a year. Not just BP, that's the whole of the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that's, if, if the alternative fuel uh, companies had anything like the same kinds of um, help from the government, they too would be putting a, a, a proportion of that into their research and development. At the, at the present time, they don't have anything like the resources that BP do. Thank you, Paul Benny. And before we go to the Somerset uh, House experience, uh, we'll go to Lizard, uh, a collaboration, a track of yours in collaboration with Nitin Shoni. Yes. Portrait Gallery, we will go to Somerset House. Um, what I, j just before we go on to that, would I just want to mention that last tune, uh -huh. which was uh, came out of a, a wonderful collaboration with Nitin Thorny 
Um, who off, you met at the Somerset House? Who I met at the Somerset House, <laughs> but he 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 got he called me to see if I would do an album cover for him, mm. and and he'd recently seen the exhibition that I had there, and I was happy to do that. And but after a while of working together, I think we did two or three album covers together. We went, he discovered that I would play music as well, so we ended up in his studio um, working on a few songs together. That was one of them. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that would be an exciting uh, time. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I'd been listening to his music for 20 years, so I was really happy <laughs> to uh, to finally get to meet him. And also, I suspect that he, he felt that your art can represent visually his tunes, that mm. he felt engaged mm-hmm. uh, in order to, to invite you uh, to, to make his uh, album covers. Absolutely. I think Nitin's uh, music, in a way, does something similar in that it offers questions mm-hmm. rather than answers. And how was the experience of Somerset House? How did you manage? How many years were you artist in residence there? I think it was five, <laughs> five years. How can that happen? I, I, um, no, I've I never does. heard. No, uh, I, I think they just forgot about me uh, <laughs> in the dungeons underneath. Uh, Very convenient, I suspect. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's an amazing place to be. It was initially it was one year, and then I and then we decided to have a an exhibition which needed another year to complete. And then that, the year that this show happened, um, that took a long time to organize. So that was three years. And then the last two years, I think they were deciding kind of how to get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> But in the meanwhile, you had an amazing uh, exhibition to a space I've never seen before. In the uh, Dead the House. Out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, t- t- tell me a little bit about this space. I this mean, is right underneath the courtyard uh, in Somerset House, which is a magnificent... Extremely labyrinthine space. I mean. Yes, it was, it's, has these tunnels underneath the courtyard that were initially used as storage for for all sorts of things for the for the main building, but also was the site for reburial of the court of Queen Henrietta. Her court being Roman Catholic couldn't be buried anywhere else and so they ended up down there. So the headstones were kind of inset into the walls and that provided along with the sort of dungeon feel a really evocative space to show my work. And yes, I think it was the first art show that they'd had there. And it was the first time I saw your paintings with a resin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why did you decide to use uh, resin? Well, I, I, one of the things I'm interested in is uh, the kind of, I don't know quite how to describe it, it's like the fourth wall. The, painting, the painted surface, the two-dimensional painted surface acts as a kind of meniscus between us, the viewer, and the world beyond the picture plane. And as an artist, I'm always trying to kind of make that more porous, that meniscus. And the application of the resin kind of made that even more tangible, where it's kind of like a glassy finish. So you really feel like whatever's happening beyond that glassy finish is is kind of makes it more real or more it pushes it further away like you're never quite sure where where you focus three-dimensional dimen- three yeah. work i think your eyes have a really hard time focusing on the painted image underneath the resin and so it somehow makes it more three-dimensional like a hologram mm-hmm. and especially in a, in a space like that yeah uh, but uh, I, I have very strong images. I have to say, this show kind of uh, it, it was a very strong experience for me, like uh, levitating uh, bodies and um, uh, exposed and fire and water mm. um, being kind of the main elements uh, yeah. surrounding them. Yeah, um, and I see fire uh, is a big f- and flames. Uh, is a big part uh, of your work. Uh, why do you use them? What what does it 
has um this image has always been with me for now I look back at my body of work and for 30 years it's it's somehow it's been there as a way to um animate in paint or in two dimensions animate this spiritual world the quest for the sort of divine and there's something in fire and flames and smoke that conjures that up and effectively you know if you can paint it well enough you know it has the it it puts your work it puts the images into a um a different realm you know beyond the the sort of tangible world that we live in and sort of primes you as it were for the for the metaphorical mhm and it I could say also I see a kind of uh, a Rembrandt desk, hmm. a play with light and dark. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's strong in your work at large as well. Yeah, well, Rembrandt's a good example. I mean, he he with his use of of light and dark shadows, that sort of tenebrous backgrounds that he always uses. It, it transports you as the viewer into a kind of sepulchral world um and i guess he's been one of my biggest influences goya does it as well to a certain extent um and velasco th- as well but less he's less interested in um in the spiritual world but he's his ability to create those sepulchral spaces is is similar yeah mm-hmm. um do you are you following a specific religion? So there is a, a big part of spirituality mm. and um, there are um, religious elements in your work. Uh, but are, are you following a specific um, religion as such or it's a, it's a kind of... No. Kind of in Espinosa's terms, uh, yeah. God is nature. <laughs> yeah. so you, that's exactly, yeah, I was going to use Spinoza as an example. Um, yes, inevitably, you know, all religions have in their core a kind of Spinoza-esque quality to them. It's just that we need it somehow or other. We've always needed to personalize our gods. Um, but if you take the personality out of all those religions, uh, the godheads, their personalities, you take it away, then you're left with nature, really. And uh, so, yes, my work does sort of relate to religious imagery. And I find, you know, the Bible is full of amazing, amazing stories, amazing images. But essentially, when you pare those down, it all comes down to very humanistic elements which is, you know, that's what I'm more interested in. Let's go to Sapphire. Sapphire, mm-hmm. yeah. That is, it's a song that's um, written and sung by Nick Laird Clues, who's a, a great musician. This particular song was uh, one of his from um, several years ago that, in my view, needs to be re-released as a major hit. It's a wonderful song. Um, uh, and he's just recently released an album of songs with, for the Leonard Cohen film by Nick Broomfield, which he composed the theme music for. Wonderful as well.
and that was Sapphire. And uh, the sad thing with this radio show, which I always regret, <laughs> is that the best things are discussed at times uh, when the mic is off <laughs> and okay. when we are listening to the music. So then we, you have to repeat these things again and again. Uh, but they're not as original and, and pure <laughs> in a way, the way they involved you in this kind of... Um, uh, behind the mic conversation. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, a summary, Paul Benny, of what we just said <laughs> 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 about sapphire and art forms and uh, deconstruction and tangible things and real, real things. Well, what, what, yes, what we were just talking about, which is that uh, that song, which is now must be nearly 20 years old, is is. So, it, it comes from a place that now I think people are really understanding as the real thing. And we we, we kind of need the real thing much more nowadays than we perhaps used to when society was a little more stable. And I think in an unstable world, we will look towards things that we feel are real in a profound way. And... You know, Nick's voice and his guitar playing on his own in his front room is as real as it gets, and that's why it resonates so strongly now. Um, and if you go to you know, festivals, music festivals around the world, it, it, there's there's a huge resurgence in folk music, ballad balladeers, troubadours, um, people doing it for real uh, and not relying on computer programming uh, so much anymore mm -hmm. yeah. do you think that we're getting a little bit lost in translation and I'm referring uh, to your work uh, speaking in tongues huh. <laughs> interesting how do you mean lost in translation that we have um, as human beings um, we started facing huge problems in communicating with uh, one another Ah, I see where you're going with that. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> speaking in tongues uh, for people listening is just a big a project that did at the Venice Biennale in 2017, uh, which included a, a, a large work of what people think of, I suppose, as a kind of Pentecostal pa painting, uh, as a lineup of um, men who are all friends of mine, but actually kind of look like disciples with a flame dancing up above their heads, um, which can be seen as a sort of Pentecostal image. It was a huge, large-scale painting uh, mm. with resin on top of it. Mm -hmm. Extremely fragile yeah. to transport. Well, it was uh, a nightmare to transport. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we show this work, and I'm very proud of that, for the first time at the Shoreditch Town Hall. Uh, out of a heads project I created with James Putnam. Mm. Um, that was the first time I think it was yeah. shown. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was amazed when you took the decision <laughs> to take this work uh, in Venice. Mm. And uh, how did you do that? <laughs> I mean, practically, uh, for me, it sounds like a whole mission. How 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 heavy is this work to start up with? I mean, I, yeah, I think. The completed, I can't, I don't really remember how heavy it was, but it was, I know we had, it was, I know we had a crane that had to lift 500 kilos. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it was the, the, the painting itself, which is on a metal frame uh, on aluminium and all of the framework that supported it as well. It was extremely heavy and getting it around Venice through the little canals, which could only be done at low tide because it was too tall to get <laughs> under the bridges at any other time of the day. <laughs> um, but to go back to your question about lost in translation, I I think the word, the name speaking in tongues kind of sums that up and that we are a bit like Babel. You know, we, we, we speak in many tongues mm -hmm. and there is a lot that can get lost in translation. However, I think if we 
if we can all be on the same page um, spiritually um, and philosophically, then perhaps we can, even though we're speaking different languages, all understand each other a little bit better. Since we go to the very base of uh, basis of communication, of feeling and sensing the other with just having a, a respect for one another, even sometimes without communicating linguistically. Mm. Um, I would like to go to the African Bushman. This um, is, uh, yeah, exa you're exactly right, and that's why I love this little piece of music as a way to, you know, bring it all back to the beginning. This is a relationship, this music comes from the bush in Uganda and it's recorded by my musical collaborator James uh, Ribbons and who's on a five-year project to uh, record the disappearing Bushman music. <laughs> Extremely happy, and I was wondering what happy are sounding. they yeah, uh, what are they talking about? And the answer is definitely not what I was expecting uh, to yeah, hear. Yeah, it it does it does sound it does sound <laughs> happy, but it's about the effect of AIDS in Africa on on marriages and how that affects people on the ground there. So yeah, you wouldn't think of it by listening to no, it. No, no, definitely not. Uh, it's actually shocking. Uh, mm. It's as a it's a surprise, mm. and yeah, really. how this kind of uh, pain, loss, uh, illness is going uh, under such a kind of um, tunes that feel that they are more kind of celebratory, kind of it's yeah. a form of celebration. Um, yeah, yeah, that's extraordinary. I think it's how people deal sometimes with uh, tough issues. Different perspective. For sure. yeah. 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 It's a good lesson. <laughs> yeah, it's a good lesson. You are the only one, maybe, who had access to the Supreme Court and all the kind of uh, political elite uh, at the time of Israel. Uh, what was, when was, when you were in Israel, what was the story about that? I've seen yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's <laughs> the most extraordinary story, really, where I was asked um, to compose uh, what became the state portrait for Israel. They'd never had one painted before. Um, and it was to include all of the key players in government and a few in the diaspora as well. Um, prominent figures in the Jewish world, I guess you could say. 
including heads of government. And um, it was at a remarkably sweet time in that country's history where there was an awful lot of hope that there might be a resolution. It was around about the... the, Yeah, resolution with the Palestinian issues. Um, It was around about the time of the Oslo peace talks, which, while I was there in Jerusalem, were meant to be secret. However, I knew about them because... (laughs) Uh, Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres, both of whom were jetting off to Oslo uh, for these talks, we used to come by the sittings and so the studio, <laughs> which was had been built specially in a kind of secure corner of three floors below the Supreme Court, which is right next to the Knesset, in like some Kafkaesque story <laughs> of being... <laughs> sequestered away as an artist underneath the courthouse with it was nuts so we had you know there was one time in particular when Shimon Peres arrived by helicopter um and had to keep the rotors running while he was having a sitting he was on his way somewhere but he explained that it was more expensive to turn the machine off and then do all of this startup and rerouting and navigation issues um than just to have him ho- having the machine holding for, and waiting for him. So I, while I was painting, I could hear like thumping so outside how, yeah. of the rotors going around. How much time did you need to do this work? I mean, how much time did they need these extremely busy people <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to dedicate? It took, a year. it took nearly a year. Wow. Um, mm. I did it in three-month stints and then came back to England to see my family and just have a rest and then went back. It was one of sort of like old-style commission... Artists get sent abroad like a court painter, that kind of thing. And why you could not take a photo of them, of them and then do the painting? Will that well, I could do that, uh, and I did take some photographs while I was there. Yeah. But in order to save time, um, one of the things, I mean, I had sittings with everybody, but uh, in order to save time, the way I composed the painting was to, instead of having them come to sit around and me to arrange them into a suitable composition. I had, I collected all of the cleaning staff from the Supreme Court and then put a tag on them saying, you know, okay, you're Yitzhak Rabin, you're Shimon Peres, you're Teddy Kolek, you're this and that. And they'd sit around what was the uh, architectural maquette of the building. Um, and I moved them around until I got them in the right position, take a photograph of that and work up the sketches uh, and then into a suitable composition, which is then approved, and then went from there to the sit- real sittings. Let's go to bomb the base, okay? Yeah. Uh, Bark powder dust. Hmm? Yeah, Kruder Dorfmeister, who's a, who are German, um, originally DJs, but now cre- have created music for a long time, and they kind of saw me through the early 2000s when my life was in a bit of a mess and they're just great bomb the bass
stories that Paul Bainey could possibly have with all these people sitting for him from the royal family, <laughs> the parliament MPs or whichever stories or personalities like Mick Jagger. Um, unfortunately, we don't have the time to do that. Another but time. Another time, uh, <laughs> Paul, where we can see uh, your work next. Um, well, the... For the, for the for the painting uh, that painting work, there's the show at the National Gallery in Sweden in Stockholm in February, where uh, some major works are going to be shown from all over the world. Some amazing other artists. I got some pieces in that, or one one big piece in that, and then um, I have a show of digital uh, painting, digital hybrid um, works that I've been developing over the last year that's going to be on show during the freeze new york period in a amazing gallery in harlem new a new gallery in harlem so you're going back to the states slowly yeah, slowly briefly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh paul benny uh thank you very much uh, it was a great thank pleasure you. to have you uh today with us yeah, likewise it's great to be here uh ladies and gentlemen have a lovely day <laughs> 